Well, I'm wondering how many of you know the name Keegan Randall. Keegan Randall was an American Olympic cross-country skier. The way that you would remember her is if you watched the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea, because Randall and Jessica Diggins won the United States' first ever cross-country skiing gold medal in a sport known as Team Sprint. So a two-person team with each member skiing six miles, but they do so alternating every two laps. So two miles for the first person, two miles for the second person, back and forth until you get to a total of 12 miles. So essentially, it's a relay sprinting race on skis. Doesn't that sound exhausting? I just thinking about that sounds exhausting to me. A little background. Because the United States has never won a single medal in this sport in the history of the Olympics. Not even one single medal. And they weren't even supposed to be contenders in 2018. Norway and Sweden, as you would imagine, were the favorites. And yet the dynamic duo of Randall and Diggins produced the race of their lives with an absolutely epic finish. Because Diggins is behind as they come to the final straightaway. And she's skiing against the number one sprinter in the world and the number one most decorated skier in the sport. So there's no way that you would expect for her to come from the behind, out sprint these two people and win. And yet, not only does Diggins catch them, but passes them and crosses the finish line, get this, 19 hundredths of a second faster than them. So, absolutely awesome finish. It's one of those events that brings tears to your eye. I mean, I don't cross-country ski to save my life, but I watched that, and tears come to my eyes just because I know how hard they worked in order to win this. And it's helpful for you to know this was Randall's fifth Olympics. Up to this point, though, she'd never finished higher than sixth place. So she'd been working For this moment, for over 20 years of her life, starting all the way back in 1998. Now, I recognize some of you weren't even born yet, but for some of us, like, that's 20 years ago, right? 1998, she's 20 years of her life for this moment. She'd been striving, straining to reach the podium, traveling all over the world, gone for most of the winter, every single winter, leaving her husband and her son behind. And yet, why did she do it? Why all the effort? Why all the time? The gold medal. To win the prize. Which Paul will describe for us this morning as a perishable wreath. That's going to be placed in some trophy case to be looked at and admired but doesn't have any eternal value whatsoever. Let me just ask this one question as we kick off the new year together. How much more should we be striving and straining, working and laboring for an imperishable wreath? For the joy of our own salvation and the souls of others, that they too might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I mean, shouldn't we be working at least as hard as the Olympic athletes? 
with a greater sense of clarity and strategy and purpose? Of course we should. But what does that look like exactly? My desire this morning is to answer those questions. Why, how, and for what purpose should we be resolved to live on mission in 2022 for the glory of Christ? So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, page 835, if you're using one of our Bibles, Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Outline is in the bulletin as always. Matthew 28, well-known verses, I'm sure. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Follow along as I read. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Part of the reason we're starting in Matthew 28 is because this passage is well known as the Great Commission. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because if you don't understand the authority by which we've been given this command or the specifics of our mission, then you're going to be off doing your own thing. And that's obviously not helpful to the mission or helpful to your own soul. So notice where we're at in the book of Matthew. This is the last chapter. These are the last verses of the entire book. So by this point, Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He's been crucified, dead, and buried, and he's risen from the grave. And now he's standing before these disciples who, by the way, were with him the whole time. So with him before he died and with him now after he's risen from the grave. And he's saying to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Which is pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, he said that he was God. He predicted his own death. And now he's back from the grave. Declaring all authority has been given to me. But here's the question. Who gave him that authority? Pretty helpful piece of information if we're going to follow his commands. So A, who authorized the mission? Well, the short answer is God the Father. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, all things were handed over to me by my Father. He's even clearer in his high priestly prayer. John 17, 2, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, since you've given him all authority over all Flesh. So all authority given to Jesus. Why? John 17, 2 tells us so that he might give eternal life to all those whom God has given to him. Which, by the way, is the closest parallel to Matthew 28, 18 that we have in all the Bible. John 17, 2. What's my point? My point is that he has all authority for a very specific reason that he might offer eternal life 
to anyone and everyone who believes in him. In fact, that's what he's accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's what he calls and commands us to participate in the great commission. This unbelievable task of world evangelization. Us being sent out on his behalf. Which reminds me of the consistent imagery and the language that we're given throughout the entire Bible of being ambassadors. Including 2 Corinthians 5 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself. So step one, becoming disciples of Christ. And then as a result, he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, as a result of being new creatures in Christ, Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, do you see the connection? Because Jesus is the king of kings and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And therefore, if we truly put our faith in him, if we trust in his finished work and are truly forgiven of our sins and have the hope of eternal life, then we are reconciled first to God but then given the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors for Christ, which means we're sent on his behalf, sent with his concerns, sent with his message, and sent on his mission, the Great Commission. And B, what is the mission of King Jesus? Well, it's right here. Matthew 28, verse 19, to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the mission. And I want you to be absolutely clear here, because you could easily think that Jesus is giving us four different things to do, to go, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach. But that's not the case. Instead, there's just one command with three modifiers. So one main idea with three subordinate ideas. So we're to make disciples. That's the mission. And how do we do that? Well, by going, by baptizing, and by teaching them to observe all that King Jesus has commanded. Now, a couple of observations. Number one, do you realize that this mission has everything to do with people. Notice, King Jesus is not commanding us to conquer a country or to secure a hill or to retrieve property. What King Jesus cares about is people, specifically people's souls. I told you this before, but it's worth telling you again. There's only two things in this world that are eternal, that last forever. The word of God and the souls of men. So what King Jesus cares about is the salvation of people's souls and the sanctification of people's lives. And you see that so clearly in his command. 
To go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. What does that mean? It means we need to preach the gospel to people, telling them about the reality of sin and the reality of judgment, that all who stand outside of Christ will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might because they've sinned against a holy God. So there's a separation. There's an alienation that can only be resolved when a person puts their faith in Christ. And then they're reconciled back to God. And when they do, we rejoice with the angels for the salvation of a person's soul, that they've been saved that they've been born again, that they've become new creatures in Christ. And we hear their testimony, the good work that God has done in their life, and they're baptized. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. They've heard the gospel. They believe the gospel. They've identified themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're baptized. His death, his burial, raised to walk in newness of life. Do you see that's? salvation. Then what do we do? Well, then we teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. So we teach them the Bible, the instructions of scripture, and we call them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with a transformed life. So people who are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ with lives that look more and more like his perfect life but not perfection, right? Wouldn't wouldn't that be great? I'm resolved in 2022 to be perfect. That would be awesome. But then we would suddenly not need God in our lives. It's not perfection, but it's certainly progress. That's what sanctification is. It's progress, us being more and more, living more and more like Christ. Now, do you see how we need to have mission clarity? First, by knowing all authority has been given to King Jesus. That gives us confidence in the mission. And then second, that he commands us to be involved in people's lives. So he's not calling us to be involved in other things. Not primarily. I mean, don't get me wrong here. Please don't misunderstand me. I I, I know that we need to have jobs and careers, right? We need to have roles and responsibilities. We certainly need money, right? I've watched It's a Wonderful Life, right? Right? It sure comes in handy down here, Bob. Yeah, I understand that. But that's not what God is calling us to primarily. Primarily, we need to be ministering the gospel to people's lives. So then recognize our jobs and our careers, our roles and our responsibilities and our money. It's just platforms and resources by which we can carry out the great commission, the salvation of people's souls and the sanctification of people's lives. And this mission is for every Believers, so not just pastors and missionaries, not just the professionals, but every single disciple of Christ, making other disciples of Christ, or as we say here, a proclamation, knowing Christ and making Christ known. 
But how do we do that? I mean, yes, I know by going, by baptizing, and by teaching, but how exactly does the Bible unpack what that looks like? Does it give us a strategy for how it works? Great question. I'm so glad that you asked. Of course it does. If you would, go ahead and flip forward to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Follow along as I read verses 19 to 23. I think these verses are the best verses for what does Christian maturity look like. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside to the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. In summary, Paul says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. As we jump in, I want to start by asking, should we really be imitating Paul's strategy here? I mean, is this really something that all Christians both then and now are called and commanded to do? Or is this something that's very specific for just the apostles, or as I said, the professionals? Well, the answer comes just a little bit later in 1 Corinthians. If you want to just flip forward to chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says in summary, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many, that they may be Saved. Notice how that's the exact same thing he just said in 1 Corinthians 9.22. I become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. But now listen to what he says next. And how he answers the question, why should we imitate Paul's strategy? 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So the answer is absolutely yes. We should imitate Paul's strategy, and Paul expects that we will imitate his strategy along with the entire Corinthian church and all believers everywhere because Paul's calling us to imitate him as he imitates Christ, which means we need to hear the details of 1 Corinthians 9 as speaking directly to us this morning, to our particular hearts, to our particular minds, to our particular circle of influence, that we are being called 
and commanded to use our particular freedoms, just like Paul, so that others might hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and be saved by the gospel. Now, let me put it in the form of a question. B, what's Paul's aim with this strategy? I mean, why did he make himself a slave to all? A Jew to the Jews, a Gentile to the Gentiles, and a weak person to the weak people. I mean, honestly, those are some pretty radical accommodations to make in a person's life. So a very important question to ask, don't you think? Paul's calling us to live in a way that is completely contrary to our normal way of doing things. So it's critical that we have the same aim that Paul has. And what's his aim? Five times, four verses, to win people. Verse 19, that I might win more. Verse 20, that I might win the Jews. Verse 20, again, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those outside the law. And once more, verse 22, that I might win the weak. Five times, four verses, Paul says his aim in accommodating all these different kinds of people is to win them. And he summarizes verse 22, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Here's a great question. No assumptions this morning. Save them from what exactly? You know, the most obvious answer to that question is found in Romans 5, 9. Paul says, that having been justified by his blood, by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God to come. You need to know, in all the different letters that Paul's written over the course of his ministry, this is the only time he explicitly says what we're saved from. Romans 5, 9. Listen again. Having been justified by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God to come. Which is critical information, isn't it? That what hangs in the balance of becoming all things to all people is their eternal well-being. That they might be saved from the wrath of God to come. So the gospel we're commissioned to share with mission clarity is so that all people everywhere might experience eternal life rather than eternal judgment. So rescued from it, delivered from it, saved from it. What's the it? The wrath of God to come. Now the question I can't help but ask, especially as I think about my own life, and the lack of evangelism going on in the church today. And the lack of effort being made to win people to Christ. That they might be saved from the wrath of God. Here's the question. Do we really believe that the wrath of God is actually coming? 
I mean, do we really believe that? I mean, so often, the good news of the gospel is conceived almost entirely as another strategy to handle our psychological disorders. So the gospel primarily moves in the direction of helping us with things like depression and grief and loneliness and abandonment, self-esteem, anger, fear, and anxiety. Or the gospel becomes primarily a strategy to have a better marriage or more obedient kids. Now, certainly the gospel impacts all of those things and every other area of life as well. But the glory of the gospel is that it delivers us from the wrath of God to come. Is that clear in your mind this morning? If it's not, then I want to appeal to you, first of all, to come to Christ. Because there is absolutely, positively, without a question, a judgment that is coming. A day of reckoning when all things will be made right. And if you're still dead in your trespasses and sins, then you will pay the penalty of eternal judgment. Weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. The wrath of God is coming. But you can be delivered from it. The good news of the gospel is that when a person believes in Jesus, they're delivered from it. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Which means no wrath to come, no judgment to come, no eternal death to come, but instead eternal life. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Why would you not grab a hold of that glorious offer to be delivered from the wrath of God that is certainly coming? And for you, dear believer, do you understand this morning that grabbing a hold of that reality, that the wrath of God is coming, is what motivates us to become all things to all people, that by all means we might win some, that we might save some of them. Again, I'm asking, do you really believe that God's wrath is coming? Don't assume that that's what you believe. I believe. Help my unbelief, because it's not crystal clear. Do you believe that the people you love your family and your friends, your neighbors and your coworkers, those who are closest to you, who stand outside of Christ, do you believe that they will actually experience the horrors of hell if they don't repent and believe in Jesus? I think we live in a society that tries to put anything that is difficult away from us. Old people, when they get sick and need lots of help, 
We put them in nursing homes. And then we don't visit. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just trying to say, if the wrath of God is a minor part of your thought life, meaning you don't think about the reality of God's wrath very often. You put it out of your mind. You don't want to think about hard things. Then it's going to be very hard for you to feel any sense of urgency for those who don't know Christ. Instead, what we need to do is ponder the reality of God's wrath, to meditate on it, to think about it, to reflect on it, to dwell on it, to turn it over in our minds, eyes, and marinate in it so that we might have a growing passion for evangelism and an urgency for those who don't yet know Christ because the wrath of God is coming. It actually is coming. And we have the means to communicate what can save them from the wrath to come. Which brings us to see what is Paul's strategy? What's his strategy for winning others? The answer is found in verse 19. Look again at what Paul says. For though I am free from all, I have willingly made myself a servant to all, a slave to all, so that I might win more. What an incredible thing to say. I mean, just think about what Paul's saying, that he willingly chooses to use his freedom from all in order to become a slave to all. You know, in 1520, Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a treatise called The Freedom of the Christian. And in it, he began with this paradox. First, that a Christian is perfectly, totally free from all. He, he's, he's Lord of all. He, he's subject to no one. He's, he's subject to no man. Number one. Then second, that a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone, to every man, woman, and child. And then, of course, he went on to explain that these two statements seem to contradict one another completely. And yet both are used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Which is really the exact same thing Paul teaches in Romans 13, 8, right? That we, that we owe nothing to anyone except to love everyone. So love by nature is willing and ready to serve and to sacrifice for others, for all people everywhere. So what's Paul's strategy? It's love. Not like the world loves, but like Jesus loves. John 15, 13, greater love is no one than this, that a man lay down his life for others. What did this love look like for the Apostle Paul? Well, when he was with the Jews, he became like a Jew. So joyfully following the rules 
and the regulations of the Jewish people. Embracing circumcision, celebrating holy days, not eating pork or meat sacrificed to idols, and resting on the Sabbath. All of that kind of stuff. Why? Because it would have unnecessarily offended them. It's secondary issues. And it would have ruined his opportunity to show them how the Old Testament consistently and constantly points forward to the Lord Jesus, the promised Messiah, and how there is light and life and salvation in his name alone. And then when he moved on from the Jews and he was with the Gentiles, he became like those outside the law. So tolerating, filthy language, crude jokes, and even sexual immorality, not participating in it, but accommodating it. Why? Because he's choosing not to major on the minors, not trying to keep clean the people up first, but instead speaking into their lives, helping them see the glory of God, the ugliness of sin and their desperate need for a savior. Do you hear what I'm saying? Love looks like accommodating others. Christian maturity looks like the ability to be more and more like people who are radically different than you, serving and sacrificing the willingness to joyfully lay down your own preferences for the eternal good of others. So what does that look like for us? Well, I think it looks like all sorts of things. Starting with the fact that we have freedom. We really do have freedom for love's sake and for the sake of the gospel. To overcome unnecessary, alienating differences that keep us, prevent us from ministering the gospel to unbelievers. For example, being willing to embrace what other people know and love and want to talk about. Asking about their family, listening to their endless stories, being interested sincerely in their lives, eating lunch where they like to eat lunch, doing whatever is necessary so that you might grow a friendship working alongside them, doing whatever is necessary so that you have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Willingly, joyfully, being all things to all people so that by all means you might save some. But I think it goes so much deeper than that. Because I think it includes being willing to serve and to sacrifice in any way necessary so that the gospel might go forward and flourish. Serving. Sacrificing. These would be the things you don't want to do. Right? Including staying home with the kids so that your spouse can go out and eat with an unbelieving friend. Hosting neighbors with unruly kids that destroy your house. Getting up at 5 a.m. 
in order to take a coworker to the airport just to develop a friendship with them. By the way, that's not the best time to share the gospel. 5 a.m., nobody's awake, right? Just get them up, serve them, take them to the airport, share the gospel when they're awake. Can understand what you're talking about, right? And it includes serving in the nursery. It includes holding a baby, even if holding a baby every time you hold a baby means the baby cries. But I'll hold that baby for the sake of the gospel. It means taking care of hospitality, getting up early, staying late, serving, sacrifice, so that the gospel might go forward. It includes shoveling snow to the glory of God. It includes baking brownies for life group. Right? Do you hear what I'm saying? It's, it's a million things where we relationally serve and we sacrificially partake Participate. Even if we're not on the front lines of gospel ministry, we're participating together so that the gospel might be proclaimed. We're laboring together so that some might be saved from the wrath of God to come. All of that in my mind has everything to do with being resolved to live on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ, just like the Apostle Paul. Verse 22 I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. In fact, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you see how clear his mission strategy is? We must be those who have mission clarity, mission strategy, and by God's grace, number three, mission purpose. Follow along as I, lead our, as I read our last section this morning. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Paul goes on to say, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The first thing I think of as soon as I read those verses is the Winter Olympics. I mean, the immediate picture in my mind is Jessica Diggins sprinting for the finish line and reaching out her ski at the last moment in order to take home a gold medal. That's clearly what, what's in Paul's mind, right? The Olympic Games, the runners racing and the boxers boxing, all to win the prize to take home their perishable wreaths. He says they do it all to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So let me begin by asking, A, do you understand? Do you really understand what's at stake here with this mission? Because Paul's pretty clear when he says, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. What's the blessing of the gospel? Well, it's obviously eternal life, the joy of heaven, being reconciled with God and enjoying him forever, which means our eternal well-being is at stake in how we live out this mission. Paul brings it up again, verse 27. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, 
I myself be disqualified? So let me ask, do disqualified people receive prizes? Do disqualified athletes receive prizes? No, they're disqualified, right? They're forced to give back their prizes. I mean, how many of you remember the name Marion Jones? She was a celebrated track star in the 1990s who won the 100-meter sprint in 1997 and in 1999 and finished with three gold medals, three gold medals in the 2000 Olympics. But later, Marion Jones was stripped of all six medals. Why? Because she was using steroids. So she didn't win the prize. She was disqualified. And therefore, they took all the medals away from her. She didn't compete consistent with the rules and the regulations of the Olympics. She's disqualified. No gold medals. Do you understand? Paul is making the same point here, which is why we must be absolutely sure that we have biblical clarity and a biblical strategy and are actually running the race of faith with a biblical purpose. Here's my last question right off your outline. B, how should we participate, therefore, in this mission? Three short answers. Number one, with all of our might. Number two, with self-control. And number three, with mission purpose. Number one, with all of our might. My introduction, I told you that surely if these Olympic athletes put in all of this time and all of this effort and all of this energy, striving and straining to win a perishable wreath, then we surely should work just as hard or even harder with a greater sense of clarity, strategy, and purpose to win an imperishable wreath, the salvation of our own souls and the salvation of others. And I believe that's absolutely true because that's what Paul is saying. Verse 24, that we are to run in such a way that we might win the prize. So we have to be running for all of our might. That's the only way runners win, right? Have you ever seen anybody jog and win a sprint? I'm generally heading in that direction. Oh, I won. Who would have thought? No. You run for all your worth. That is the only way to win. If you're a runner, run in such a way that you might win, which means you're running for all that you're worth. Boy, I think we need to hear that this morning. We live in a day and an age and a country that is all about comfort. Everything that we do, happy to serve, happy to sacrifice, unless I'm uncomfortable. Right? Me included. That's 
what we're prone to. That's not what Paul's saying. This is an incredible challenge to us going into 2022, that we might run for all that we're worth. You know, Jonathan Edwards, while he was a student at Yale, he wrote 70 resolutions to motivate him to run the race of faith in such a way that he might win the prize. And one of them captures the spirit of verse 24. Jonathan Edwards said as a teenager, resolved to live with all of my might while I still live. Is that you this morning? Resolved to live with all of my might while I still live. Which is really just a practical outworking of the two great commandments, isn't it? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But actually doing it with all of your might. Striving, laboring, abounding, excelling, being zealous to run like winners run. And being resolved to being done with half-heartedness and laziness and being lukewarm about the things of God. Instead, running for all your worth, being poured out for the sake of the gospel. Being poured out means there's nothing left. When you pour something out, you turn it over, you pour it out, you shake it. There's nothing left. You know what happens when you pour it out and it's shaken and there's nothing left? It requires you to trust God. That's what happens because you got nothing left. You're totally dependent on him running for all that we're worth, which means we must be those who, number two, run with self-control. Verse 25 says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Verse 27 says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. And of course, we know self-control is included in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. But what I want you to realize this morning is that the spiritual power of self-control only happens when we actually believe God's promises. Meaning, we actually believe in delayed gratification that this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That the, notice, sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That greater joy will actually ultimately always come through self-denial rather than self-indulgent because that requires self-control. Hear what I'm saying? Actually believing that greater joy comes as a result of self-denial rather than self-indulgence. But that requires self-control, doesn't it? So training ourselves to believe God's promises. Training ourselves 
not to believe the devil's lies, but God's promises so that we might serve now, sacrifice now, accommodate others now, knowing that our eternal reward will be absolutely worth it. So the Christian should ask, what will make me the most useful for the kingdom? What will grow my zeal for God? What will intensify my prayer life? What will trigger a greater appetite for the things of God? What will fan the flames of my own personal holiness? In summary, what will cause me to be more things to more people that by God's grace I might be used by him so that more might come to faith in Christ. That's what it means to run with self-control. Because it's self-control in my life so that others might come to faith in Christ. Then last but not least, number three, participating with mission purpose. Again, verse 25 Every athlete runs and boxes and competes and participates to receive an imperishable wreath. But we, an imperishable wreath. Listen, why should we be resolved to live on mission in 2022? Here it is. So that we ourselves might win the eternal prize of everlasting life the salvation of our own souls, and the joy of being in God's presence for all eternity. Paul says it so well in 2 Timothy 4. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. As we close, I want to want you to realize two very important things. Number one, running the race of the Christian life is no small task. It's difficult. It's hard. Because what you decide to do with your life and how you decide to run your race and how you decide to orient yourself towards others, serving, sacrificing, and accommodating will make all the difference in the world between sharing in the promises of God or being disqualified from them altogether. That's in the how do we run, which means the running is difficult. So my exhortation, believe in Jesus and be resolved to live on mission for him. That's number one. Second thing I want you to know, I think you know this, but it's so helpful to be reminded, is that receiving the crown of righteousness from the Lord, the righteous judge and hearing him say, well done, my good and faithful servant, will be 10,000 times more valuable, more enjoyable than receiving any Olympic gold medal. 
What's the best part about running? It's being done. Running. I hate running. I'm serious. Is it? I mean, maybe if you're here and you raise your hand saying, I love running, just don't raise your hand, right? Like, because most of us hate running. Every time I start running in the first half mile, this is what I think. I hate running. I, I hate everything about this. Like, I can't, I can't stop thinking about that fact. I hate running. What's the best part of a three-mile run? It's being done with a three-mile run, right? Just think about that analogy. Here's what he's challenging us with. Don't love the running. Look forward to being done with the running. That day when you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. That'll be 10,000 times better than winning any gold medal, any perishable wreath. Do you believe that this morning? Well, then let's run like it in 2022. Allow me to pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We feel so challenged, so convicted. Father, we want to be those who live on mission for the Lord Jesus, who live for your glory and honor and praise. So, Father, I pray for my friends here this morning, any who are here this morning who have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus, I pray that they would start there by recognizing just how worthless the things of this world are, that they, that they might turn from those things and they might believe in the Lord Jesus, say, I'm done with that. I'm with him. I'm going to live for the Lord Jesus, knowing that in him is the salvation of my own soul. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that, that we would be done with the things of this world and that we would consider it pure joy to live on mission for the Lord Jesus, that we would have it as the desire in our hearts to be all things to all people, that by all means we might, as a congregation laboring together for the sake of the gospel, win some, that your name might be glorified. Father, we give all these things to you. Pray that you would be doing that good work in our minds and our hearts for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.